So a lot of a question that pastors get, people get, and people are confused. They'll say, well, you know, why are there so many different Christian denominations? It's a, it's a common question. People have. And the short answer is Christians disagree. We, we know that Christians disagree over things. And sometimes those disagreements can involve meeting in a different church building. Christians who have different views of church government, different ways of how to organize a church. I mean, in a very precise way, they sometimes have different structures. And so they, they disagree on how to set up those structures. And so they have different organizations. Now, when said from that vantage point, when, I, when you're looking at it from that perspective, some people will say, well, denominations are evil. Well, not necessarily. I mean, people can split over bad reasons, but denominations in and of themselves are not inherently evil. I will say, though, they're a part of living in a world where we have limited knowledge, we're sinful, we're broken, we disagree, we're prideful, all of those things. I, so I do think it is a result of being in a broken world in many ways. But people like to say, okay, well, and they, they're still uncomfortable and I understand it. They're uncomfortable with the idea that Christians disagree, that Christians uh, you know, meet in different churches or maybe have different organizational structures. People struggle with that. They say, okay, you know, Nate, if, if Christianity is true, then everybody should agree. We should have like identical mental states, I guess, that we all have the same beliefs, unified into one whole church with the exact same beliefs, with no divergence, no disagreement at all. That's how it should be if Christianity were true. They are assuming that. Problem is, if you think about this, just like just a kind of a broad look at the world, just how people think through things and have viewpoints, no viewpoint throughout human history is free of human disagreement. All viewpoints, positions, people disagree, and if they don't, they'll make up a disagreement. That's how it is. And even if something like, apparently like very non-religious or anti-religious, some would say like atheism, the idea there's no God. I mean, I hate to break it to you. There are different splinter groups of, of atheism like there are just of Christians. There, um, I was watching the Joe Rogan experience and he had some guy on talking about atheism and stuff. And um, he was talking about how the new atheism had kind of broken up into like the conservative, like logical, critical thinking atheist and then the woke activist atheist and how they used to all get together and hang out. And now they're like, this is a sharp division over social issues. And so, yeah, I mean, there's disagreement, even in atheism. And what's, what's really is going to bake your biscuit. This is really interesting is there's even disagreements over the word atheism. Like there's no God. I mean, people disagree on that. Uh, it's, it's interesting uh, to me. I was, uh, so I'm the speech and debate coach at uh, Intermountain Christian School, the middle school one. And, uh, and, you know, I watch a lot of debates, you know, and usually the people are pretty, you know, put together. They're respectful in having a dialogue and discussion going back and forth. And I was watching this one YouTube video and I've watched hundreds of debates. You know, I like debate. It's, it's fun to watch, you know, people exchange ideas. And I was watching this one debate between two atheists debating over the word atheism. One saying that atheism means you've got to deny the existence of God. And the other one saying, well, I just lack a belief about God. I just, you know. And so these two atheists in this YouTube video, I mean, it, I mean, it was like watching WWE, I mean, or Jerry Springer or something. I mean, they were going at it. I mean, I have never, I have watched uh, probably thousands at this point in my life. I love watching debates. I have never seen anybody cuss so much or curse at each other in a debate in my life over the word of atheism. Like, they're like screaming, red face. I was like, this is unbelievable. I've never seen this. And over the word. So yeah, I mean, people disagree and even over small things they can get 
pretty passionate over, over the word of atheism. And so I think it's more about, not about Christianity, I think it's about people. People, we are short-sighted, we are sinful, and we love to think we're right about everything. We've got it all figured out. Every other people are like, oh, they don't have it figured out like I do. I'm the greatest, you know, I got it all. And we get, we jump to conclusions. We have the, you know, office space jump to conclusion mats. And we, and we stick to our guns. If we jump to that conclusion, boom, we're there. And we ain't, we're not backing down. We're not, I'm not wrong, I'm always right. I got it figured out. So there's this pride component in human beings that we're always right. And yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna fight, fight on that hill. And yeah, disagreements are in every organization, every company, people that work. You know, you know, you have disagreements with your coworkers, and so yeah, there's disagreements in families. I've noticed this oftentimes. The most people, and I'm probably, you know, the the most a lot of relationships, especially the uh, parent um, child relationship, a lot of disagreements in that one. <laughs> <laughs> from a very early age, like as soon as they can talk, they disagree with you. And they'll let you know about that pretty much constantly, I found. Um, so there's disagreements in families, and yes, even in churches, there's disagreements. We know this. Uh, and you disagree with a person sitting next to you, and every person in this room you disagree with. I can prove it to you. There are 31,102 Bible verses in the Bible. 31,000, over 31,000. I mean, it's a lot of verses. You're saying with your unique background, your unique beliefs, where you were raised, are you saying you have the same view of each 31, over 31,000 Bible verses as every person? There's no way. So you're going to disagree. And so it's not a matter of if, but when in the Christian church we have disagreements. How are we going to approach them? How are we going to think about them? Because you just can't cut off every person in your life. You're like, well, they disagree with me. You're, you know, you're done, you know, kind of thing. You live that way, and you're going to die alone, okay? I mean, you're not going to have relationships. I know that sounds harsh when I say it like that. Pastor was really harsh about disagreements. But no, I mean, relationships are the spice of life. You don't have good relationships. It's going to be a sad thing for you. And so, yeah, we, we would, if we cut off every person disagree with us, we would have no people. We would have a very sad life. So it's important we know how to disagree. We know how to forgive and move on and think about these things, especially as we're unified here as a church in the body of Christ. And so Paul does this great job in kind of talking about the fact, yes, the early church, they disagreed on things, tons of things. And here um, in Romans 14.1, excuse me, Paul's going to go through here, and we're going to be looking at this verse by verse, looking at verse 14.1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not quarrel over opinions. Quarreling over opinions. Don't quarrel over them. And he's talking, he's not talking about working out or anything like that. You're too weak, I'm too strong. I promise no Arnold and Storchenegger impersonation, but it just came through there. But, you know, I mean, he's not talking about that. No, he's talking about somebody who, in not describing all of their faith, but an aspect of their faith, we're talking about somebody who is not weak all around, but weak in a, in a, in a certain area. According to scholars, they, are, you know, have, they lack confidence, lack faith, that they're free to do certain things or, they're, or to believe certain things. Or they, their faith has not carried out to its logical implication in every area of their life. A common example about this is someone who is weakened in faith in an area is a Christian who thinks drinking alcohol, any at all, is a, is a sin or bad. This person may even know that Jesus drank wine. This person may know that the Bible teaches that there's supposed to be wine in communion. I hate to break it to you, the Corinthians were not getting drunk off Welch's when they were over drinking in communion in 1 Corinthians 11, okay? 
They may, uh, they may get that intellectually, but there's something emotional going on. They may have had a very severely, physically, and crazy abusive parent who drank. And that's how they grew up. That's, and, so, and so, yeah, I actually know a pastor who, like, you know, this guy does not do good if you drink in front of him because he had a, a highly abusive father. And so he, he does not touch alcohol, doesn't want to see alcohol. There's this negative association with it. They are weak in their confidence about that. Yeah, but they're not weak in every area. I'm sure that pastor has probably stronger faith than I do in some areas. So you can't make this blanket, just judgmental statement over a person like, well, you're obviously a weak Christian. I'm the strong one here. So you're just, I mean, you know, kind of like look down on, that's not what he's saying here. In fact, Paul says the opposite. We're not to look down on people. Um, we have no right to make a blanket statement over someone's life and saying, yeah, you know, you're just weak in faith. You ain't, you're not good enough, you know, kind of thing. He's saying, we, so the fact of the matter is, is because we all have inconsistencies with our faith. You're inconsistent every day. I can prove it. You sin. You know God exists. You know Jesus is true. You know he has the right way. But we sin every day. And so we're all weak in some areas. I'm weak in some areas. So I like the way that scholar Leon Morris puts it about this whole discussion here in Romans 14. He says, as the discussion shows, he does not mean a person who trusts in Christ, but uh, but little the man of feeble faith. Rather, the person he has in mind is the one who does not understand the conduct of implied by faith. He's inconsistent. He does not understand what the meaning of justification by faith is grasped. A question like the use of meat, wine, special days becomes irrelevant. It's not the foundation of your faith and it's not consistently carried out. And so, yeah, we, if we're being honest, we're all weak in some sense. We all have inconsistencies. Well, except for Jesus. He's perfect. So we shouldn't be judgy and be like, oh, weak Christian, I'm the strong one here, I'm better. You know, no, we can't have that. I'm positive we all have weaknesses. Now, Paul says, yeah, that this is going to be our attitude towards other Christians. We don't have to constantly, I don't, have to, I don't feel the need to go into the congregation and constantly fix all of you to make sure you agree with everything. I, I got to like have an upfront contract where you agree with everything I sign off. That's not, we don't need to feel the need as Christians to fix everybody. Ultimately, we're going to see that's God's job, and our posture should be of loving and welcoming people, even if they disagree with us. Romans 14, 2 through 3. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, eating, eating meat and abstaining, which would be vegetables, and let not the one who abstain pass judgment on the one who eats. Both groups should not be judgy, for God has welcomed him. God has accepted him. Now, it's really important because the historical context here is just profound. And so people for, you know, forget, they think, oh, vegetarians, like are they, you know, these Christians have some objection to like factory farms or they don't like killing of animals or something. No, it's not like that. Uh, I don't know if they thought that way in the first century per se. That's not the issue. Uh, the issue here is, is food that is offered to idols. So these people were used to believe in many gods and many idols, and they, and they would offer food to them, this, this meat, you know, animal sacrifices to these idols. And, we'll, and when you would buy meat in the meat market, there was, you know, that meat more than likely was also sacrificed to an idol. So, you know, and so these people who were formerly Gentile pagans who had many gods, worship many gods, you know, they get into that mode when they're eating that meat, they're thinking, oh, this is sacrifice to this God and I'm thinking about him and maybe he still exists and they're struggling in their faith, struggling when they're eating meat. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 7. 
he says, this is these Gentile Christians now that, that struggle with this belief. And I mean, you're, you're going to see this clearly here. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. We all have this knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Don't have to be like, huh, well, I know more doctrine than you. I'm smarter than you. You, you, know, you, you know you got that wrong. You know, kind of like a Dwight Street, you're very corrective. Like, well, I've got it all. I, I've memorized all the catechisms. I just know it all. I'm, hmm, you know, Captain Correction, you know. Like your company's computer guy who thinks you're bad at computers. You know, always has to correct you. Let you know that you're wrong, you know. He said, no, you don't have to be like Captain Correction. Be loving to this person. Love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know yet as he ought to know. But if, God, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. He is saved and regenerated. Therefore, as the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. There's only one true God. There's not, these idols don't really exist. These things are fictions in your mind. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, so-called as in they don't really exist, as indeed there are many gods, lower G, that's not really, and lords, many lords, they're not real, they don't have real existence, they're in people's minds. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That's a good evidence for Jesus being God here. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. However, not all possess this knowledge that there's only one true God. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to idols, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So yeah, it's, I don't want you to miss this. Paul is making a shocking statement here. He's saying these new Christian believers, they're, they have such, they're so new and they're so confused that they struggle with a very basic belief, I might add, that there's just only one true God. There's not many gods. They think the idols, in some way, when they eat the meat, they, they have this former association and they get into their idol-making mode when they have that meat and they get back into their old way of thinking. You know, we're not like robots with perfect beliefs. We struggle with things. And so his thing is like, hey, you don't have to fix people. God's going to fix them. And don't make them stumble. Love them, accept them, treat them with kindness and grace. Don't just be like, you disagree? Cut off. That's not how it works here. There's a, a process of love and grace where God grows us. And eventually, yeah, they will, they'll get over that belief, but it takes time. It's not an instantaneous, like you're just a Spock robot, you know, boop, boop, boop. Oh, all my beliefs are correct. That's not how we work. Humans are emotional. We're pretty colorful. You know, we have, we have hangups. We struggle. Don't just cut people off because they struggle. And if that were the case, we'd all be cut off. I love the way John Stout puts it. He says, um, Stat. Um, he says, how dare we reject a person who God has accepted? Indeed, the best way to determine what our attitude to other people should be is to determine what God's attitude is towards them. How does God view them? The, this principle is better even than the golden rule. Do, under, uh, uh, do it to your neighbors as they would have them do to you. It is safe to treat others as we would like them to treat us, but it is still, still safer still to treat them as God does. As God does. So yeah, we are to treat other Christians as God does. God has saved them. God has declared them righteous in Christ. God has accepted them. We shouldn't, we shouldn't reject somebody who God has clearly accepted. Even if they're weak in a certain area, we don't like the way they view things. You don't write off a Christian because he likes wine and Netflix. You don't just say, oh, you're cut off, you know. Or, you know, I like beer and college football. This guy, wine and Netflix, that's not for me. I like college football and I like an IPA, you know. 
that person doesn't have superior taste. Like, we don't have that, you know, or really look down on the person who, you know, I don't know, drinks root beer and watches Disney Plus, whatever it is, flavored coffee, I don't know, you know? And so that goes in the opposite direction. You know, we're not to be like, you know, and some people get like this, you know, you got this guy who's kind of a goody two-shoes, you know, doesn't touch alcohol or anything, and you're like, wow, that guy's just too good for alcohol. I guess he just, he's such a goody two-shoes. Let's, let's look down on that person. We as Christians are not to have that attitude towards one another, just this constant negative derogatory kind of like looking down on others because they don't have the preferences and ideas that we have. We, are, we as sinners, let's be honest, we're constantly thinking what we do is the best. What I do is the best. I'm terrific. Everything I do is awesome. What they do is not as good as me. We, we have this kind of self-righteous voice in our, in our head. And Paul's point is, yeah, that's not how we're to think about the Christians. That's not how we're to think about disagreements in the Christian church. Um, how, we're, not to, we're not to go about that way. We're to show love and grace. Now, Paul goes on and continues to talk about now something that might be more obscure to you, might be more strange to you, but the difference is about the doctrine of Sabbath days and everything. He kind of throws this in the mix here. Romans 14, 14, 4 through 6. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So God is sustaining them by his grace. He is taking care of them. You don't have to be in the mix and have to fix everybody. That's not, you're not God. You're, it's not your personal responsibility to be the fixer of everybody here. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind because he doesn't want to violate his conscience, as we'll see in the next sermon. The one who observes the day observing the day, just one, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he has given thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, God, uh, the Lord, and gives thanks to God. So I think probably what Paul has in view here is a Sabbath day, and what, that was practiced in the early church, and especially with Jewish Christians, what is amazing, it's an amazing evidence for the, for the deity of Jesus Christ, is that Jewish Christians who practiced, uh, or, or the Jews who practiced the Sabbath for thousands and thousands of years, I mean, it's embedded in their culture, and, you know, they had been practicing the Sabbath on Saturday, you know, ever since they were like, a, you know, a little Jewish boy or girl, they've always practiced it. They all of a sudden made a shift from the Sabbath being from Saturday to Sunday. And so what people use as a great evidence is that the Jews were so rigid with their laws. What would cause these Jews to switch it from Saturday to Sunday? Well, the resurrection would do it. That's when Jesus rose from the dead, was on the first day of the week. And that's why Christians, the Christian church, and Christian Jews celebrated the Sabbath on Sunday. They moved the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus. So they put a lot of practices in there about the Sabbath. Now, the Gentile Christians uh, would have gathered like any Christian would on the first day of the week and would have been a part of that. But they're not viewing it as a whole day of rest, as a special day, as a day better than other days. It is my personal viewpoint that, yeah, this Sunday's a special day. We need this day for our souls to find rest in Christ. It's part of God's design. But, you know, if you don't agree with me on that, okay, no big deal. I'm not going to lose sleep over it. I, you know, still love you. You know, it's not, that's not a, that's not a die kind of, let's die on that hill kind of thing. And so here's a beauty that Paul, the point that Paul is making here. I want, don't want us to miss this really important thing. You can disagree with Sunday being a whole day of rest or a special day, whatever it is, as the Sabbath is, and God's still going to accept you. He still loves you. 
He, you know, he's not going to be like, well, I don't, you know, you're off on one thing, you're done. You know, that's not how God works. He still accepts you and loves you. And so that's how our attitude should be with people who disagree with us on these issues. If you disagree with somebody on a small point of doctrine, you're not to be like, well, you're a subpar Christian. You're less, no, that's not our attitude. And so, yeah, that means a Christian can still be a Christian on the same level as any other Christian and have these disagreements, even be a part of the same church and get along on some reasonable level. You know, that's what, so Paul says, we're not to argue and make a big deal about these points. And if you're not to argue over them, then obviously you're not to divide over them, right? Here's the big point. We're not to take a non-essential issue and elevate it to a like foundational die on the hill issue of the Christian faith. And another, there's, a no, there's a number, I mean many, many, non-essential, what we call open hand, you know, there's closed fist, open hand issues. Open hand issues are the issues we can, as Christians, can disagree with. You have the closed fist issues, which are like, you know, the gospel of salvation by grace and faith alone. Uh, you know, the inerrancy of the Bible. The Bible's the word of God and uh, that there's one true triune God. Those are the closed fist issues. But there's open fist issues, you know, that, that, that we have, that, that we can disagree on. Not to divide over these. I love how Augustine, who made this point thousands of years ago, described kind of our attitude in the Christian church. It's a very beautiful quote. He says, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So, yeah, I've kind of mentioned a few of these non-essential issues or these open, open hand issues. Uh, and you're going to know some of these, obviously, alcohol, observing the Sabbath. But obviously, ones that are kind of hot or used to be hot topics more in the 90s, but not so much anymore. Contemporary versus traditional hymns, you know, would be another example that Christians can disagree on that, agree to disagree on that. And people have different views of the end times and what's going to happen at the end times. And, uh, you know, some people get really into that. But that's, that's an open hand issue. People... Christians can disagree on that, whether baptism is pouring or sprinkling or dunking or whatever, whether a person is young earth or old earth. Those are open hand, non-essential issues here. Of course, spiritual gifts today, you know, what ones are binding, which ones are around. That is a non-essential matter of the Christian faith, you know. And one of the open hand issues that can cause, you know, divisions because people have different ideas of how the church is to be organized is, of course, church government. People have different views of church government, and that is a non-essential issue. And people, of course, people have different denominations over church government, which I, I would say says nothing about their souls. I think they're legitimate Christians. They're totally legit. They're believers in Jesus. Some of them have, I'm sure, better faith than me. I don't judge them. And so we can't be obsessed with like these small things and miss the big picture, miss what being a Christian is all about. Now, to be honest with you, when I first became a Christian, I was a part of a church organization that said, in order for you to be a Christian and be a member of this church, you have to have all of these non-essentials figured out. You got to got them all in a little pretty bow, have them all figured out. And then on top of that, you have to agree with us on everything or else you're not a member of this church. It's like, and you know, what I found is like, I don't think I can do ministry in this church because, you know, and I was so young, I just went along with it. I couldn't, you know, I, was, I didn't really understand what was going on. But I figured out, it's like, well, you can't do much evangelism because when, you, when, a, when a believer first gets saved in Jesus, there's a lot of messiness in their 
their views and their, and, their, and their beliefs. I mean, you look at the Corinthian church. What a mess. I would make the joke when I was in this church. It's like, well, you know, no one in the church of Corinth would be able to join your church. And yet Paul calls them saints. Paul calls them holy. And they were doing some pretty messed up things. Let's be honest. You read through that book, you're like, people are like, I just want to go back to the early church and how it was in the first century. Oh, you want to go back to getting drunk on communion wine and getting in fights. Uh, that sounds great, you know. And uh, church discipline, you know, like they, they were having some real problems with church discipline. You can just read chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians and you can see that place was a mess. We don't even have that going on here. It's pretty good, you know. People always want to have, go back to the glory days, but when you read through the Bible, there were problems. I mean, Peter denied the gospel for crying out loud. So, yeah, if, if, you, if you, you know, understand the Bible and you, and you are, if you first become a Christian and you don't have a great understanding of the Bible, yeah, you don't have to sign off. If you're, you know, part of Corinth Canyon, you don't have to sign off on this, on this massive list of, like, doctrines in order to be a member here or to be a part of our church, I should say. And so, yeah, I want to stress here, these are small issues. And, you know, in an evangelical Bible-believing church, we want not to divide over these small issues. We don't want to, uh, you know, just break up over them. A lot of churches have denominations over dividing over the smallest of issues, even sometimes, I mean, this is, I can't understand this. I'm from Southern California, so maybe that's why. People have divided over how to dress to church. I mean, you could come up with anything. And so that's why we strive here at Corner Canyon to be, you know, multi-denominational in our approach, to have multiple denominations. If you have a denomination or not, whatever, or if you just want to learn about the Bible, you know, we're united in the essentials and the unity of the faith, the triune God, believing in the gospel of God's amazing grace. And so we, that's why we really try to make going through the Bible and, you know, striving through through this verse-by-verse -verse preaching here, that, that really is our focus here, is trying to learn the Word of God and not being so uh, obsessively focused on this kind of denominational differences kind of stuff. And so, and so yeah, that's kind of our, our approach here. And there, there are people who, you know, I mean, there, there's some practical reasons why there's denominational split-offs and why people meet in different churches. Like, there's some people who feel like if it's not, every song is not a contemporary song, like, that you've just heard on K-Love, then, like, they're going to be upset. And there's people who said, well, if the, if the hymn was written in the 1600s, that's how we know it's a really good song. Let's only play those songs. You know, there are people that think that way. And look, that's really important to them. You're a brother and sister in Christ. You can go wherever you want, you know, if you like that kind of thing. But I'm going to equally recognize you as a Christian. I love you. I accept you. And that's why we want to do work with other Christian churches. That's why we work with other Christian organizations and other parachurch ministries. Because we think we're all Christians and, and legit. That's why we partner with Calvary Chapel to do Operation Christmas Child. Because I think they're a legit church. And we want to join them in their ministry in spreading the gospel of grace. Now, I grant maybe differences about church government. I get it, you know. But I'm not going to make a big deal about that. I'm not going to be like, oh, wow, you don't agree with my particular view of the church government? I'm just going to cut you off. No, I'm going to stress our unity in Jesus Christ and not bring disunity over the, the small minutiae. So, but what does it look like to be divisive and disagreeable and, and difficult here? To be divisive is to elevate a secondary issue, a non-essential issue, to a primary issue. That's what it means. As if your pride and your life and your identity depends on like, 
oh, you got to have perfect Sabbath observance. I'm going to go around correcting everybody in the church. Like, so uh, how are you observing your Sabbath today? You know, kind of like going around like a church lady, making sure everybody's, you know, dotting their I's and crossing their T's kind of thing. No, that's what it looks like to be a divisive person in a church. Um, and so, you know, I know I've been given a number of examples of this, of being divisive. But so my, my mother and my father, they come from the Assemblies of God. And they have their own worship style there, and that's cool. But, you know, uh, my mom was a nurse, and she was working with this very, 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 can't say it enough, traditional gal who went to a very traditional church. And she said to my mom, Joni, you don't really go to a real church because you don't have a organ. My mom's like, that is so offensive. Like, that's so divisive. And so she had this bad view of this church. And we don't have to have, like, hyper-intense decision-making about those small things. Well, if it doesn't have a wooden pulpit, you know, made of an old, old wooden ship, then, oh, that place is bad. You know, no. We don't have to think like that. We're not to lose sight of our unity in Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of these folks don't really like, you know, small differences. They don't like different preferences. They don't appreciate this kind of thing. And let's be honest, we all kind of want to go to heaven where everything, everybody, we're all going to agree in heaven. It's going to be terrific. It's going to be beautiful. Some of us want to get there sooner rather than later. And so some people, what they do, some groups or, Christian, or uh, religious organizations, what they say is they say, let's get a group of people or one leader, one prophet, one dude. And this, and this guy's like, or this group is going to say, this is, the, this is a one infallible correct church. And we're, we're going we're gonna to be that correct church. And, you know, and every, every non-essential gets elevated to an essential issue, by the way, when this happens. Because, you know, they've got everything correct. They're hearing from God and they know all the correct stuff. Everything is perfect. So every secondary issue is elevated to a primary issue, like your life and soul depends on it. So to disagree with that organization is to disagree with God. Because, you know, if they say you shouldn't do this and you do it, uh-oh, we're going to cut you off. So this is a correct, you know, this is a correct church. Every other church is false and bad or not as good or sub-Christian or however they put it. And so uh, typically this model tends to be very black and white about every single issue in every single way so that you disagree, heretic, you're done. Or you're cut off from the one correct, infallible church that gets it all right. Disagreeing with us is disagreeing with the Lord kind of mentality. And then what people don't realize, and, and you just can research this, Google it, look it up, and it's very interesting, is that when you have, there's, by the way, there's multiple I'm not thinking of anything in particular here. There's multiple correct, infallible churches that make that claim to themselves, that claim to be the correct, infallible church. Hundreds of them. And what happens is when someone, some guy comes along and says, this is a correct one, everybody else is bad and wrong. That when they make all of these secondary issues, primary issues, somebody in the church is like, I don't agree on that secondary issue. That, doesn't, that seems kind of sus. I don't know about that. And so what they do is they start up their, sec their second splinter group and they say, yeah, well, that church, that's not really the correct one. We're the correct ones and you guys are heretics. So they just have this. And what you'll find is you find hundreds and hundreds of splinter groups all breaking off saying we're the correct ones, so you're wrong. And it's just like this thing, right? And so they're all condemning each other and they have all of these splinter groups. And you can look it up on Google that, you know, any, like all the breakoffs that are happening. And so you do this research and it's just amazing that they end up having more churches claiming to be the correct, true, infallible, we got it all right church. And they have so, we, we have so many churches that claim that, that there's more churches that claim that that are actually denominations, which is, I find, 
interesting. And so with denominations, you have no problem recognizing that another church is a legit Christian church, that they just have a different preference or disagreement over these secondary issues. And that's quite a contrast from this you know, correct, infallible church model with so many churches claiming you're wrong, we're right, no, you're wrong and we're right kind of thing. Or what they'll do, and this is another thing, a correct, if there's like a, a church with more people in it, like millions, they have a lot of, you know, members, what they typically do is they don't want to talk about the smaller splinter groups that are 100, 200, 500, whatever it is. And see, this, this infallible, correct church model goes exactly against the disunity that Paul is trying to prevent here. In Romans 14, it goes against it because he's like, don't divide over those things. When you get a correct church and they're saying, you can eat this, you can drink this, you can do this, you can go that, you know, and it's all this kind of thing. And, you know, you got to have this diet, you got to have this worship style, you got to have this kind of Sabbath observance and everything. But you see, the real advantage to, uh, you know, different Christian churches that fall under the just listening to what the Bible says is, yeah, you can agree to disagree with people. And I don't have to say, you're bad, or you're wrong, or you're incorrect, or, you know, we can be unified in those essential matters of Christianity. The Bible clearly teaches. So, you know, all Bible-believing churches, Baptist, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Lutherans, Anglicans, denomination, non-denominational, whatever it is, we don't have to demonize them and say, oh, bad, all false. We can say, no, those are just, those are, it's, a, it's a, you know, a Christian church. They love the Lord. You know, we recognize them. They're legit. And we may not agree on everything, but... We're looking forward to heaven. We're, that's going to happen. What's interesting, the Greek word for church just means a gathering of people. And it's, you know, summarizing all individual churches are gathering of people. It's not some like, you know, necessarily like, a, a, like an organization or group of men that make up infallible rules. It just means a gathering of God's people. So when people make the church into this kind of correct producing belief machine, that's contrary to what the intent of, as we can see here in, in, in Romans 14 with Paul. So yeah, I, would, I have a Lutheran friend here in, in Utah. I would call his church a true church, Calvary Chapel. I would have no problem. That's a, that's a Christian church. And so they are just particular Christian bodies that meet together to worship Jesus, which is what the New Testament word for, uh, the Greek word for church is, a gathering of saints. We are unified, and I say that, by not having a group of men saying, okay, this is the correct way you have to do the Bible. We are unified just on our own in the essentials of the Christian faith. Evangelicals who believe the Bible are unified. People don't know this how unified it gets. But if you just follow the word of God, this is according to a, a Ligonier state of theology, that they, 97% of evangelicals agree on what, what God is, essentially, in the core elements. 97% say there is one true God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Unified on that, 97%. So, you know, it's not like, you have a Bible and everybody has a different viewpoint. No, there's, there's a core message and people are agreeing at a 97, 98 percentage sign off on that. It's not like a free-for-all. It's not true. According to Ligonier State of Theology, 93% of evangelical Bible-believing Christians agree with this essential gospel statement. God counts a person as righteous, not because of one's works, not because of trying, achieving, and doing, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. Justification by faith alone. That is agreed upon by 93%. That's pretty high. So yeah, evangelicals agree on the gospel, the one, who the one true God is, without having this 
group of guys or whatever, you know, one prophet. I don't know how people view it. People have so many different infallible churches out there. It would take me forever to summarize them all. There's so many different ways you can cut up that beast. It's just amazing. But, I mean, it's, you know, without that, we have the Bible. Just reading the Bible, we have this unity in Jesus and Paul says that, that we have that and we're not to divide over these issues. Now, what's really interesting is they actually ran one of these studies on one of these, there's so many of them, but this is one in particular, one of the larger ones, has over 50 million members. They ran a survey and found that of their, of their members, uh, 70% of their members don't agree with their core teaching. I'm not even making it up. 70%. That means only 30%. So you see, we'll say, if we, get a, if we just get some infallible church up there that just dictates everything to us, we're all going to, we're just going to all agree. It's like, yeah, well, we're not going to agree because 70% of one in particular, they just, they all, they don't agree with the core teachings of the church. So I'm thankful their members believe what the Bible teaches instead. And, uh, you know, I, I expect to see many of them in heaven. So that's just great, you know. So if you just read, you know, many of these churches read the Bible anyway. So it's a good, it's pretty good here. Now I'm going to finish up here with Romans here in Romans 14, 7 through 12. For no one lives to himself. We live to Jesus. No one dies to himself. We belong to Christ. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. We belong to Christ. You are not, you know, you're not somebody, you're not my Lord. God is my Lord. He is responsible for me, my growth, and what he's doing in my life. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and the living. We belong to Jesus. That's the point here. Why do you then pass judgment on your brother? You belong to Jesus. He's your brother. He's your sister. Why pass judgment? Or why do you despise your brother over small things, over secondary disagreements? He's, he belongs to the Lord Jesus too. For we, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. What a beautiful day that will be. And every, conf every tongue confess to God. We're all going to stand before God. He's the one that fixes us. He's the one that cleans us. I'm not the, I, don't have to, I don't feel the slavish need to fix every single person. I leave that to God ultimately. I, don't, I believe in accountability. I believe in all those things. But ultimately, it's God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's what ultimately matters. So I can't look down or think less of you because you don't agree with everything that I do. I can't do that. To assume that I am right about every single detail well, if you talk to my wife, you find out that I'm not. Okay, because, no, you know, any, anybody's spouse, right? You know this. And so I'm not going to pass, I'm not going to pass judgment here. I'm not going to, to pass judgment in this overarching harsh way is to ultimately, which the Bible says we should avoid, is to ultimately, this is Paul's point, to play God. Only God can play God. Only God can be God. Now, obviously, there, there are issues of clear sin. I'm not saying, well, you know, as, you know go and murder people, adultery is secondary. No, that's, there's some clear issues, okay? I'm not saying there's not some clear issues. There's some very clear issues. But here's my point. Drinking IPAs and playing cards ain't one of them. It's just not. You know, having a beer and playing some cards is not a clear sin in the Bible. We can disagree about things, but we always have to remember as Christians, we are united in this core teaching of the one true God, the triune God of Scripture, that we are saved, justified by faith alone and trusting
and His mercy. And this is why the gospel is so central and important to everything we do here at Corner Canyon. When we get the gospel, it frees us from slavery, from legalism. And I, I promise you, we're all wrong about one of these 31,000 plus Bible verses. You know, I, but I don't have anxiety about that. I don't sit around worrying about that because my identity is not in me being right about everything in the Bible. My identity is in Christ who was right about everything in the Bible for me. In his rightness, not my Nate being right, because I'm often wrong. I'm not going to bank my identity in that. I'm going to bank it in Jesus. So, you know, I, I try not to worry about these small, non-essential issues at the end of the day. You know, I remember being a, being a, a young guy, and I, would just, I had to be like Captain Correction. I had to know everything. When I was in my 20s, I felt like I like, well, I have to have all the doctrine down. I have to correct each person in the church to make sure that they're just perfect like me. I've given that up because I realize I'm wrong oftentimes. And, you know, I have to trust in Jesus and his rightness for me. It's not my rightness that gets me into heaven. It's not my perfect theology that gets me into heaven. It's the perfect obedience and satisfaction of Jesus Christ. It's his perfect mind, not mine. And so, yeah, you could be confused about all these things. You could be wrong about theology today. All of you, we're all wrong and you're all going to heaven because you trust in Jesus. And that is the bottom line. We don't have to pursue the slavish attempt to show that we're right about everything. We don't always have to be right. You don't have to die on that hill. You can say, I'm wrong, but I, you know what? That's not a strike to my identity. My identity is in Christ, in Christ alone. And there's so much freedom in that. So much grace in that. And so if you've not received Jesus Christ this morning, it is the most liberating thing to know that I don't have to be perfect and have, you know, be worthy enough. Jesus is worthy for me. So if you reach out to Jesus, he will declare you righteous. All your sins are forgiven. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. Jesus proved it for you. So please receive him. I pray that you would this morning and you will have eternal life in him.